Should Christians pray for world peace when Jesus predicted increasing warfare? We're going to start with just one verse of scripture, which after this morning will be a relief to a lot of people. We read a lot of text in the morning service. Matthew 13, 7, this is Jesus, and he's talking about the end of the age and the things leading up to the end of the age. Matthew 13, Luke 21, Matthew 24, those three passages in the synoptics are called the Olivet Discourse. On Mount Olivet, and Jesus is talking about the end of the age in those three chapters. Mark 13, 7, Jesus says this. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. These things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Must take place. That's, that's the part that kind of jumps out at me. Not may take place, could take place. There's something in that word. These things must take place. I suppose there aren't very many issues that divide Christian people more than the subject of war, just war. There are pacifists. War is always wrong, always unjustified. Retaliation is always wrong, always unjustified. Wherever you stand on that, I'm probably not smart enough to change anybody's mind, and I'm not sure that's my job. there's probably never been a generation that's been able to see the horrors of war anywhere on the planet close up the way we can. I mean, you see old movies sometimes, and I'm sure they're historically accurate where you see people even in London during World War II, and they're glued to the radio just to find out something that's going on. And that's the information they have. We get to see it. I mean, who isn't moved? Watch the news, the bloodshed in the Ukraine. I mean, the media just keeps us so close to all of these things. And so Christians have different views. But I I do think there's probably one area where we're at least relatively united, both sides of the spectrum. I mean, Jesus is not the property of the political right or the political left. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. But probably all of us would agree that that prayer would rise from my heart. Lord, just bring peace to this corrupt, violent, war-torn world. In Jesus' name, just bring peace. I'm going to show you in a minute where we're told to pray for peace, which sets up the conflict. Jesus saying these things must take place, must take place. And Paul tells us to pray for peace. What does must take place mean? And if wars must take place, how are we supposed to pray for peace? I mean, it's, goodness knows, hard enough to muster faith in God when praying for anything as big as global peace. Now I have to also confront the possibility that even God doesn't want peace to exist because Jesus said wars, they must be. Do I have to pray with that possibility on my mind too? What's that do to my prayer life? 
I think there are some helps. I don't think this would be a long study. Here are some things I try and keep in mind, and I think there are some lessons here, maybe for the church. How we pray for peace. How should we pray when Jesus said these things must take place? So, point one. Christians should pray for peace while understanding that there are times when God uses moral evils in this world to accomplish his divine purposes. So in other words, I'm saying there really is, there's the internal conflict that we feel, but there's no final conflict between Jesus' words that war must take place and the command from Paul that Christians pray for leaders and pray for peace. Let me show you where that is. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. First of all, Paul speaks. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. By the way, do you know the difference between supplications and prayers and intercessions? It's just one of those interesting tidbits. You should have an idea. Supplication always has to do with uh, the idea of re repenting as you pray. So it's not intercession, it's just bringing a need. This person is sick. This person is bereaved. This person needs help. That's intercession. Supplication is as you pray, there's the awareness of your own weakness and frailty, and there's an element of confession and repentance, even as a request is given. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, how, Pastor Don, how can that be? How can we give honor to the words of Jesus? These things must, these wars, they must take place. And then obey the injunction of Paul at the same time. And I'm not sure I can explain that completely to you, but I do know that it's right to do it. And I know that because Jesus did the same thing. I'm thinking about the circumstances surrounding his death on the cross. And the Bible is very clear the death of Jesus on the cross was not an accident and it wasn't just Roman soldiers and Jewish religious leaders. You have stuff like, here's Peter's explanation of the cross of Jesus in Acts 2, 23. Peter's giving a defense to the Jewish authorities. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men, Notice, you crucified, killed by the hands of lawless men. And yet, Jesus is delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Notice again how the early church expressed their understanding of the crucifixion of their Lord in their prayers. In Acts 4, 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. There's the human side of the equation. 28. To do whatever your 
beforehand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so here's what I'm saying. We learn, very importantly, I think, that God sometimes uses very wicked, unjust events in this world to still accomplish his purposes. And we see something else. We see that Jesus, who understood better than anyone the full purpose, he came to give his life a ransom for many, he said. He knew why he came. He knew the purpose. He knew the mission. He agreed with the mission. His heart was united with the sending Father. And yet, we see Jesus praying that that wouldn't happen. He did. It's in Matthew 26, 39. Going a little further in the garden, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I take that to mean that we're entitled, even encouraged by the example of Jesus, to pray against things that are unjust and immoral in this world, even though God may be using them to accomplish his greater purpose. The fact that there are things like war that simply must take place, Jesus said, doesn't mean that we can't pray for unjust things like that to cease. How does that work? Point number two. Our prayers should be guided by what we know from our perspective. Those are the important words. What we know from our perspective to be righteous and just for mankind. Can you still say mankind? What's a uh, person kind here on earth? Matthew 6.10, your kingdom. This is Jesus teaching. We call it the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. He's giving it to them. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What I'm saying is we pray for all of these things for peace. We pray for all of these things from our perspective, from our view, our limited view of things. I mean, we simply don't, I don't possess, and you don't possess absolute knowledge. Your will be done as it is in heaven. I don't know how God's will is done in heaven. I don't know how all the angels do his bidding in heaven. I've not been given that information in the scriptures. I know this. I know I live on earth. And I know that my prayers have to be guided as best I can from the information in the scriptures and the commands of God directed toward me. Because that's all the information I have about God's will. We simply don't know everything about God's sovereign way for all the nations and peoples of the earth. We aren't given that information. So in other words, here's a principle. All things being equal, we are to pray for our world in ways that are in keeping with the way God has commanded us to pray and us to live, not by the way he may unfold his sovereign plan in ways I can't understand yet. What we do know, God's commanded us to keep from dishonesty and 
hatred and bitterness and violence and bloodshed in our own lives. And I assume, all things being equal, this is the way we should pray for his will to unfold in this world. A little bit more I want to say yet, though. Point number three. We should still always pray for peace humbly. That's the important word there. Pray for peace humbly, knowing that a sovereign God may leave open the possibility of war. There are a number of texts, and I wrestled, because you can't include every text. I'm going to Romans 13, 1 to 6, because it's a New Testament text. It's given to the church. It's the Apostle Paul, Romans 13, 1 to 6. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Think about the implications of that for a minute, especially in terms of war. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And we chafe against that verse just a bit. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. You will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword. That's interesting. Not the gavel. And I know this is written in a particular time, but the imagery is pretty clear. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. And everyone said, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. There are a few basic ideas. I I'm not exegeting that whole passage. We can't. Here's a few basic ideas. As far as I can read from the text, while you and I are not to take personal vengeance in our own hands, okay, you, you strike me. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not to strike you back. You want my cloak, I give you my other coat also. It's, it's non-retaliation in personal relationships. That's what Jesus is talking about there. That's not what Paul is talking about in Romans 13. So while you and I are not to take personal vengeance in our own hands, God has given to governing authorities in all sorts of different monarchies and dictatorships and democracies. There are people in authority and God has given them the right and the obligation not just to negotiate deals, but to bear the sword. I know those are complex issues. Let me ask a question. Don't worry about your notes for a minute. service ends tonight and uh, I'm going to walk down Main Street, Newmarket. I want to get uh, a hamburger somewhere. And as I'm walking down the street, there's nobody else on the street. Then I decide I'm going to go for a walk and I start walking through Fairy Lake and I'm walking on the pathway and I see an old lady. She's 87 years old. 
And as I'm walking, I see a guy come lumbering out of the woods and he starts beating her up, mugging her. Is it right for me to just keep on walking and pretend I didn't see that? Okay, okay. Is it right for me to run in there and try and help the lady? How many say yes? Okay. As long as you know that I do that at a certain risk, because I don't know but that there are other guys waiting in the bushes, I go over there and then three other guys come up. And now the situation is escalating. I didn't intend it. But whenever I go to help a lady like that, I do so with limited knowledge of how this is going to end up. Do you see what I'm saying? I, 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 my intentions are good. I want to help. And I think we all agreed it is morally compulsory for me to help. If I just walk away, it's not my business. I'm just as bad as the guy mugging her. Not quite, but almost. But if I step into that situation, it may get a lot worse. Now, just push back the boundaries. So I'm not talking now about a lady at Fairy Lake. We're talking about nations, peoples. And I'm not thinking about any the, the Ukraine. Maybe, maybe it applies there. But a dominant power attacking a lesser power, bloodshed, killing. I'm another nation. I have the capacity to do something good. Am I, where's, now, does, the, does it change? I'm saying, does that change from the lady being mugged at Fairy Lake? Or is it the same situation, just with more people? Do you see how complex this is? Because if we're saying, no, it's the same thing, Pastor Don. This is a weak nation that didn't do anything to be attacked and is being plundered by a stronger nation. And, and if this nation has the ability to help and it doesn't, that's just not right. But if I do, what's another nation going to do? And what's this group going to do? And what I'm saying is, we're working, whenever we work in any situation like that, there's nobody save God himself, nobody knows, how is this going to end up? Do you see what I'm trying to say? It's, it's something that you pray about humbly. You pray about it humbly, knowing how difficult the situation can be, and knowing how limited my understanding of that situation can be. I'm not saying there's not an absolute right and wrong. I'm simply saying, those aren't things you just sort out with the flipping of a coin. Not easy questions. Those other cases of violence and warfare, they're further removed from my life. They involve other broken people in other lands. What's my responsibility then? In, in such cases, I'm simply saying, offer prayers. Do pray. But always pray for wisdom when you pray. And pray with humility, recognizing I, I don't know God's sovereign plan in all of these things. And if you're going to a church where somebody stands up like a prophet and says that he knows exactly what God's will is among the nations, get out of that church. Four. Last point. 
This to me is one of the precious points. Christians should pray for peace, knowing that peace itself is not the ultimate goal of Almighty God, but serves as the most effective means to what is most important to God, the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. It will happen better in peaceful conditions than embattling positions. 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, read this before. This is where Paul commands us to pray for leaders and for peace. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So for Christians to worry about praying for peace and then not commit their lives and resources to the missionary task is hypocritical, blazingly hypocritical. As far as we know, the only reason stated, I'm sure there are other reasons, I'm simply saying the only reason bluntly stated in the New Testament to pray for peace is the conversion of the lost. I say that's the only stated reason. Paul makes this unmistakable link between three things in this important text. Praying for national and international leaders. That's what he says. Two, making our desire known to God for peaceful living conditions among peoples and nations. And then three, recognizing God's ultimate desire that all men and women be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So we just need to be careful on a subject like this. It's, it's easy for churches sometimes to adopt the right actions, but for the wrong reasons. There are vast segments of the church that are frantic and they're scrambled to promote peace, but only do so for just humanitarian reasons. And there's nothing wrong with those humanitarian reasons and the ending of suffering. I'm not putting that down a bit. I'm simply saying, why? are we to be interested in these things? The dying, the battered, the persecuted, the oppressed. And the scriptures give the unique solution that puts the church in a different, unique situation from the Red Cross or the United Way or any other organization. In that, we do pray for peace, work for peace, help toward peace for the reason that people need Jesus and they need to hear about him. And nobody else is going to do that but the Church of Jesus Christ. I know those are difficult issues. We don't have all the answers. Here's my quick review, okay? Hold on to these principles. Pray for peace, knowing God can and does use moral evil to accomplish His purpose in this fallen world. Pray for peace, using God's commands for how Christians should live as a guide. Pray for peace, recognizing fully that there are appropriate times for just war and the use of the sword. You and I probably will rarely have to make those calls, but someone will. God has delegated some people to bear the sword. Five, sorry, four, let's just do four. 
pray for peace knowing that God's ultimate goal is never merely the absence of war, but the spreading of the gospel. And so, yeah, church, stay on your knees, keep humble, non-contentious, pray for our leaders and those in the rest of the world, pray and work for peace as you write out your check for world missions. And God will bless. <laughs>